Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome to The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by Vox Senior Correspondent Herman Lopez. Hello. And ProPublica's Dara Lind. Hello. And we are going to be talking about Facebook. Perhaps better known by its original name of The Facebook, or its new name of Meta. Oh, hey, yeah! Ooh, it's Meta now! Facebook has nearly 3 billion active users around the world, which is more than a third of the world's population. And they present information to these users in an algorithmically controlled newsfeed, which means that Facebook itself has incredible power over what news, memes, and gossip, as well as hate speech, child porn, and misinformation people will see. People don't want to see misinformation or divisive content on our services. People don't want to see clickbait and things like that. While it may be true that people might be more likely to click on it in the short term, it's not good for our business or our product or our community. And a recent flurry of investigations that have been sparked by document leaks from whistleblowers formerly employed by the company like Francis Haugen has made it clear that despite some of Mark Zuckerberg's higher-minded aspirations, Facebook is ultimately a ruthless profit-seeking company whose main goal is maximizing the amount of time people spend on Facebook so they can sell ads against that time. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. Zuckerberg personally killed a program that internal Facebook researchers argued would have reduced COVID misinformation by 38% because it also reduced meaningful social interactions, which is a metric Facebook uses for user engagement. Zuckerberg also agreed to apply government censorship to the site in Vietnam and directed Facebook engineers to make the angry emoji reaction more important than the like reaction. In other words, stuff that riled people up was getting deliberately spread faster on the site. Facebook finally stopped promoting posts because of angry reactions and found that this change reduced misinformation, meaning their earlier policy was promoting misinformation. So those are the findings that struck out the most to me in the latest reporting. Herman, what else stood out to you from this recent dump of Facebook news? I think it, you put it well in the sense that, like, we have confirmed here that Facebook is a for-profit company that is very interested in expanding and maximizing engagement at all costs. Some of the other stuff, not sure if people, like, like it was confirmed exactly how it worked before, but things like comments essentially elevate your posts in a in a very big way like just replies to anything you post will get a big push from facebook through the algorithm i mean that also seems like innocuous on face value but what it actually does is encourage people essentially arguing with each other to some extent like especially if you're you're combining that with for example prioritizing the angry emoji then people are going to start you know bickering maybe getting a little toxic with each other uh, especially if the topic of politics comes up. I mean, I think we all have the experience of talking with friends and family about politics and it gets a little tense. So I, I think what 
we see here in general is that Facebook has really prioritized engagement as a concept, which is not surprising. We knew that was happening already. But the way that it all works, it's pretty clear that they do not seem to care that much, at least until they're pushed internally and externally to do something about it, about like misinformation or, you know, bad things going on in their platform, as long as that engagement number is going up. I think the COVID thing you mentioned is is a very clear example of this. I mean, this is a chance was a chance to reduce misinformation. And Zuckerberg apparently said, no, uh, I would rather keep engagement higher. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is like even before this giant news dump, which which we've seen recently, is that we we know Facebook has been involved in some pretty shady stuff in the past. So I mean, there were reports that the ethnic cleansing in Myanmar in part happened because of Facebook and all the communications that were happening on there about this. I also recommend some New York Times reporting by Max Fisher and Amanda Taub about like literal lynchings in Sri Lanka that were essentially enabled by people talking on Facebook, riling each other up and things like that. Like, I think these these are important to point out because they are obviously a big step beyond just misinformation. They are things that got people literally killed. And there's a bunch of other things you can point to, like studies showing that Facebook makes you sad or or things like that. But we're also talking about things that seriously hurt people in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I think that like at this point, there's been there have been so many cycles of concern about the amount of power that Facebook has as a company and concern about the amount of power that the newsfeed algorithm has in particular that like it's kind of become a background assumption that yes, of course, Facebook's job is to maximize the amount of time spent on Facebook. You know, it's a free product, which means you are the product, your information is the product, Facebook is just behaving according to inexorable capitalist logic. And while that is, I'm not saying that any of that is untrue. The reason that so much of this stuff about the internal culture of Facebook is so interesting is because consistently through the early years of Facebook, when it was just a like massively insurgent company, not a well-established behemoth, but like a baby behemoth, Mark Zuckerberg consistently defended it not based on inexorable capitalist logic, but based on this idea that connecting people was an inherent social good. And that therefore Facebook was, you know, whatever like bourgeois complaints you might have about the latest changes to the newsfeed, what Facebook was fundamentally doing was bringing the world closer together. And that was inherently a good thing. And that made Facebook inherently good. And like, even at the time, there were some flaws in that logic. And certainly it's not as if no one has ever pointed out, for example, the role of mass media in coordinating like mob violence that leads to genocide. Like there's plenty of research on the role of radio in the Rwandan genocide, for example. And like, sure. it's it's not like this information wasn't out there for Zuckerberg and company to consume had they been concerned about it. But what we're seeing in this document dump is that those concerns didn't appear to have purchase in Facebook's own internal decision-making model. That like, there weren't a lot of times that someone was able, that someone with decision-making power was able to say, hey, um, if we wait the angry reactee higher than the happy reactee, yes, we increase engagement, but we also increase these other things that we've been saying publicly we want to minimize. Maybe we got to balance that out. Like that didn't wash. And so, you know, it's, it's worth thinking both kind of about like, you know, this plays into the question of like, how ready was Silicon Valley more generally to deal with the social role that it has arrogated to itself, but also fundamentally with the question of, was Mark Zuckerberg ever correct that Facebook was a tool for like this intrinsic social good of connecting people? Or has it now gotten to the point where it's clear that Facebook is like net bad for human interaction in 2021? Well, I think just to, to to pick up on on some of the importance of the like Facebook is connecting the world narrative that you identified there. Like, I think at the Zuckerberg level, I, I find this a little like banal. Like, CEOs are always like trying to make what they're doing seem more important than it actually is. There's some famous story about Steve Jobs, sort of early in Apple's history, getting John Scully to quit Pepsi and come be CEO of Apple by saying, you know, do do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to change the world? And like. In some like sense, Apple changed 
the world in the way that like a lot of things change the world <laughs> but like ultimately they like cell phones and computers and that's fine i like their phones and computers but but like that kind of grandiosity i think is baked into a certain especially tech ceo mindset what's interesting about some of these debates that are are being detailed in some of these exposés of facebook is how much the staff believe in it and how much this has been used as as a recruiting tool that sort of an interesting factor in this moment in like American and world history is that you have a, a small number of tech companies, Facebook, Netflix, Google, with incredible power over the stuff that people watch and see and do. And they are incredibly reliant on a very scarce resource, which is engineering talent. There's so much demand for, for good software engineers that, that there have been these tons of coding boot camps and whatever to try to expand the supply of, of people with those talents. But it's still hard. And, and at the level of, of Facebook and Google and Netflix, you have to be like really, really good at software engineering to get one of those jobs. And because of that, those staff have like more say than you would have as like a factory worker at GM to, to name the biggest company in America like 50 years ago you're just less replaceable. And if those people think that what you're doing is not just running a business, that has really important ramifications for the business itself. Like if much of Netflix's staff does not want to be working on showing Dave Chappelle's comedy specials to people, that has major business repercussions for Netflix because like there's only so much engineering talent to go around and they genuinely can't afford to lose much of it. And what's striking to me in, in all these testimonies from whistleblowers is that the whistleblowers went from actually believing in this. They weren't just like, hey, I'm a software engineer. Facebook pays really well. They have like a really good cafeteria. Um, they, they like wanted to connect the world. And if you sell people on that and then they feel betrayed, it's not just like bad for the people and can cause PR nightmares like this. It like means you might not be able to staff your company at a certain point. I do want to put in just like one note because I found this to be a particularly useful corrective piece of reporting from Casey Newton at Platformer last week, who had a Q&A with a former Facebooker who pointed out that some of the documents that are in these doc dumps are essentially Facebook's internal message board or like Facebook's mm. internal Facebook, if you will. And so often it's people who weren't involved on a project saying, hey, I'm concerned about X equity that like actually may have been discussed within the project. But there also are things like the angry reactive information, like anything about Mark Zuckerberg personally shooting something down. Uh, my preferred example here is that when Facebook was looking at like circulating voting information, the idea of circulating voting information in Spanish via WhatsApp got shot down because uh, Zuckerberg worried it would make Facebook look too partisan. Um, because apparently giving people information in Spanish is, is you know, not is, is not a nonpartisan way to get people to vote. But there definitely is enough evidence of cases where it's not just people from the outside raising questions that people from the inside were also raising, but people from the inside raising questions and those questions not getting satisfactory answers and instead getting shot down. One thing I, I wanted to point out is a lot of this reporting has happened. Obviously, Congress has, you know, paid attention to it. And Congress people, especially in recent years, have have said a lot about regulating Facebook, dragging Mark Zuckerberg to Capitol Hill and getting him to the talk. And sometimes, frankly, Congress members making fools of themselves, just asking weird questions. But as we like start looking at this from like the policy level, one thing I start getting a little more skeptical with is even though Facebook has a lot of things that it's. I think I I started by saying this, that Facebook has done a lot of bad things. It's worth emphasizing that we don't really know if all of this means Facebook is a bad thing on net for the world and that the the research on this is really thin. This is something that Kevin Drum, who's a blogger, he used to be at Mother Jones, has done a lot to point out just essentially that like the the studies done on Facebook and its effects on the world overall are really, really weak, and we we don't have much of it. And it's just worth taking that seriously because there, there are essentially two things going on here. One is, like, would some of the bad things that have happened under Facebook have happened anyway? Like, obviously, causing ethnic cleansings is horrific, but, like, it is no secret that that was happening before Facebook. So, like, was Facebook just maybe instigating or speeding up something that would have happened on another platform anyway, like radio or TV? Who knows? Like, I think that's a genuine question. 
The other thing is like, even if Facebook has led to some bad outcomes in some areas, it's possible that it's led to good ones in others. And who knows how they balance out. So I think COVID is a great example here because obviously Facebook has enabled broader misinformation, but by virtue of it being like a big open platform, it's also enabled correcting that misinformation better. I don't know if those corrections have set through in the, the same the way we would like them to, but that's something that's true. And also Facebook just let you through the pandemic while everyone was stuck at home, just talk to their friends and family in a way that certainly was must have been some sort of social good, right? Like the, the last year and a half would have definitely been much, much worse if people were just stuck at home and literally could not talk with the outside world in any way. And I'm not saying that this ultimately makes up for everything bad that Facebook has done just on COVID, but I think it is worth taking seriously that like they are contributing to some other good things. I think one one last example here, which is like maybe more important than whether you can talk to your your grandmother for a few months, is that Facebook has in some cases enabled democratic uprisings in countries. I'm not sure if the Arab Spring has aged well necessarily as a as a movement, but if you look at some of the reporting, I think from there's an article that we'll link in the show notes from John Pollock at MIT Technology Review. I mean, if ver- Facebook very clearly played a role in enabling the Arab Spring, one of the Tunisian activists called Facebook, quote unquote, the GPS for this revolution. So it's like if, if you're, you're taking this seriously, Facebook might be enabling a bunch of bad things, including violence. But at the same time, it is also enabling democratic uprisings like I'm not sure how that balances out in, in the grand scheme of things, but I think it's worth taking seriously when the, the conversation is now circling on, should we regulate Facebook? Should we shut down Facebook? How, should we break up Facebook? Like Ultimately, those kinds of policy decisions, probably like these kinds of details matter more than whether I personally think Facebook is bad, which is what I think. But from like a policy level, you, ha- you have to take all this, this other stuff seriously too. I mean, I think that once we're getting into the realm of policy, and I think it's worth... M- pointing out that like while this is you know the weeds and not like the tech ethics hour that there are like ways in which this particular instantiation of Facebook could be changed without government regulation and I think what Dylan was talking about earlier in terms of like the employee voice and exit issue is going to be particularly salient is already increasingly salient in these circles like even without any sustained above-board unionization effort at any of the major tech companies, we are seeing initiative-by-initiative stuff getting shut down because of internal staff disagreement. But like, if we are going to be talking about redirecting Facebook, we don't have to say, okay, is it, you know, are we... The point isn't pronouncing a judgment on like Facebook, good or bad. The question is, are the good consequences of Facebook really that inextricable from the stuff that we've been talking about, like, can you really not have a world in which some grandparents are getting to spend more like virtual face-to-face time with their kids over COVID and therefore are like less lonely and are more fulfilled without having other, you know, people of that same generation falling down QAnon rabbit holes because of Facebook? Like, my gut obviously is that those two are separable things because they don't seem like the same dynamic, but like, it's possible that I'm wrong. That said, it takes a different ethical and like, frankly, business orientation for Facebook to even like run down the empirics on that, right? We did see a little bit of that with like the internal work that got done on teen body image on Instagram, right? And that was a case of Facebook researchers actually looking at the effects of particular dynamics in their app on like real world impacts and saying, hey, here are some like small tweaks that we think we can make that are going to improve, that are going to like mitigate a really bad harm among a core demographic of our users. So you can, you can see more stuff like that happening that is short of, you know, straight up government regulation, but it's, also always worth noting that like members of Congress who aren't great at asking Mark Zuckerberg the right questions when he shows up on Capitol Hill to testify might not be the people who would be in a better position than Facebook engineers to determine exactly which things Facebook can control and and which, you know, which are the extricable bad things versus the, you know, kind of necessary evils of the connection model. 
So we seem to be getting into sort of policy responses to Facebook and and not to break the fourth wall for our listeners, but that was supposed to be our B segment, Dara and Herman. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about potential policy responses and uh, whether sort of proposals that are going around to regulate Facebook would do harm or good. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome back to The Weeds. We're talking about Facebook misinformation and viral harm more generally. And now is the time when we are supposed to be talking about policy implications. So any discussion of Facebook inevitably turns to Section 230 at some point. Section 230, which is a part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, protects websites like Facebook from being sued for the actions of third-party users. So like, it's not Facebook's fault if your uncle like defames you on Facebook. There are some exceptions like intellectual property violations and federal crimes like child porn. But in general, Facebook has its own speech rights in the First Amendment, but also enshrined in Section 230 that protect it from being held liable for even stuff like hate speech and misinformation that users post on its platform. And so unsurprisingly, this has become a huge sort of flashpoint in the discussion about Facebook. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have proposed changing or repealing Section 230 Herman, what, if anything, does it seem like that would accomplish? Yeah, I think like like you mentioned, basically everybody from like different political parties is talking about it. But I mean, if you ask experts about this, like just read some of the reporting on this, it's not clear repealing it would do literally anything because like you mentioned, Facebook's free speech rights and a lot of the protections come from the First Amendment like that, that you, you can't repeal that. Well, I suppose you could, but nobody's talking about repealing that. Even if you get rid of Section 230, what are you left with? Facebook will still be allowed to essentially allow any kind of speech it wants on its platform because it's its platform and it has free speech rights. And this is really just a question of like, what does Section 230, like what was it supposed to do originally? And the goal of it was to clarify already existing free speech protections that some of these communication platforms had. So when you look at at whether Facebook would lose its ability to, you know, allow bad things on its platform, the, the answer is probably not. And and in fact, I, my guess is like if Congress took steps to like try to limit specific aspects of speech on Facebook, I just don't think that would fly with with this, the Supreme Court or really 
probably any court um, just because of the First Amendment. So to me, it's like like you want to start looking at other ways. If like the idea is to like regulate Facebook in some other ways, there are other ideas. This is not to say that without Section two thirty reform, we can't do anything. But like the First Amendment in general limits just how far you can go with this. So like regulating a social media platform, and and as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, what's been interesting is that like previous, you know, often conservative led waves of criticism of Facebook's algorithm have like been on grounds where even if in practice, Herman, you're right, like Section 230 doesn't itself do a whole lot. In theory, Section 230 sounds like it's responsive to that. Like, if the concern is that Facebook is systematically silencing conservatives, then treating it as a publisher instead of a platform and therefore making it liable for the, you know, liable for its editorial decisions makes a certain amount of sense. That's not really what we're seeing. I mean, there are certainly some things like the, you know, what active steps does Facebook take toward misinformation? But so much of what's come out in these documents has been not about like particular content that Facebook is and isn't boosting, but rather flaws in the process by which it decides what content is worth boosting. And the mix between this algorithmic, like, look, ma, no hands, no human touch model, and the actual human beings making the decisions. And the radical critique that I've heard from anti-Facebook conservatives is that having an algorithm prioritizing, that any feed that is not a reverse chronological news feed is an editorial decision because some content is actively being promoted and other content is actively being depromoted, and therefore it should lose platform protections. I think that that's an interesting critique. I don't think that it can be very easily like implemented as a matter of law. I'm not sure it's a like super sound legal principle, but I think that it's worth thinking about a little bit insofar as what we've seen from these docs is that stuff that is presented as like, well, the algorithm made the decision, I didn't make the decision, is in fact sometimes specifically a decision that gets made by an individual Facebook staffer who is told like, hey, somebody flagged this as a problem, you have to adjudicate it. And even on a broader level, that sometimes the decisions that are made by the algorithm to maximize engagement can be overridden for other business considerations. So when that is happening, it definitely is worth thinking about like, what level, I think more broadly, and not necessarily with Section 230 in particular in mind, but like, there might be something to be said for having a broader conversation about like what level of responsibility does Facebook have for what it promotes and and depromotes but this seems like when all you have is section 230 everything looks like a nail I think just to, to emphasize something Herman was pointing out earlier like there are ways in which I think the most important thing the federal government could do on Facebook is fund tons of like rigorous good causal mechanism research on Facebook that part part of what's what's frustrating me in trying to like untangle some of this news is you see something like that they proposed a change that would reduce covid misinformation by 38%. And while like I I have an instinctive sympathy for the researchers in that case and, and an instinctive revulsion to to Mark Zuckerberg's choices in that case like, I have no idea what they mean by COVID inf- misinformation. This is like a private internal Facebook study that uses its own definitions, that has its own sort of research mechanisms, and they hire really good people. They're really sort of well-trained economists, sociologists, like people who know how to do causal research very well. But it's a total black box for people outside the company. The closest sort of things we get to the kind of research I'm talking about are things like there's a good piece by... Matthew Gensko at Stanford, who who does a lot of great economics work on sort of media and stuff people sort of read and watch generally. And he and, and his colleagues um, sort of paid people to quit Facebook <laughs> and saw what happened and saw that they were like modestly more ignorant. They were less likely to read the news. They were sort of modestly happier in terms of their overall sort of life outlook. And so like, I think that's an important piece of evidence just because it, it has the most rigorous research design behind it of, of any Facebook study I've seen and, and the most independence from Facebook itself and its internal methods. But we just need like a million more studies like that. There's a good piece in the, the New York Times by a adolescent psychologist on the issue of sort of Instagram and body image that, that Dara mentioned. 
and just making the simple point that like we don't we don't know uh what what instagram does on body it, it's like the theory that it would exacerbate anxieties and and lead to increases in eating disorders makes intuitive sense to me but the research that that was being leaked was just like surveys of of teens being like do you feel like better or worse and like that's that's crappy <laughs> that's not like that's not super useful information and this adolescent psychiatrist was just making the point that like for him to make medical judgment about this he just like needs a lot more solid verifiable research and like we we all are, are policy journalists who occasionally get pitches from people being like we have a new report and its big policy conclusion is to set up a blue ribbon commission to do more research and like i don't think any of us have ever written that story because it's boring as shit and we like because we like policy we like to get into like concrete policies but there is exactly one kind of circumstance under which I have written that, and I think Herman probably has as well, because it comes up a lot in policing, yeah. is when the Blue Ribbon yeah. Commission is focused on an idea that has become popularized among academics, but not among policymakers. Right. And right. writing about it is one way of bridging that. I gap. think I wrote about, like, the National Academy of Sciences wrote something on on child poverty, and I wrote about that because it was sort of repeating stuff that was known in, in sort of child poverty academia. I do not write about the bill to create a commission. <laughs> like that's that's so boring. Um, but I'm the guy standing here saying we need a bill to create a commission, <laughs> or at least a bill to increase funding for for the National Science Foundation uh, or, or other sort of outlets. To pull this back to something you were saying several minutes ago, Dylan, like if Facebook is hiring the gold standard UX researchers in the world. And what the gold standard UX researchers are doing is self-reported surveys. That <laughs> indicates that like there needs to be something like some higher level of rigor being imposed in externally on this whole enterprise. One thing that I think you said that that's important to know too is like like not knowing what COVID misinformation means. I think this like this bears some like humility from all of us because. At one point in the pandemic, it's important to remember that encouraging widespread masking was COVID misinformation. Like the Surgeon General was going on Twitter yelling at people for buying masks because the the fear at the time, very, very, very early on in the pandemic, was that if the public used masks, then like healthcare workers wouldn't be able to get them. So if we're talking about like cracking down on misinformation and like Congress doing that, are we talking about Facebook having to, you know? discourage people from doing masking early on in the pandemic i mean that, we now know that would have been a terrible idea but sometimes what's what people are getting upset about is not actually true like that like they should not be getting upset about that in the first place and they're and they're wrong and like if if we're going to go by public opinion with a bunch of these issues or even some public officials are saying i don't want to get too rah-rah about like the marketplace of ideas <laughs> but like there, there is a merit to that, and I think we we should be careful when when talking about anything that might step on Facebook's free speech rights for that reason. I mean, I think the other dynamic here, and we see this in like public response to media often, like this was for a while a pretty reliable tactic for very online conservatives to get mainstream reporters fired or moved off different beats is to do some like is to take an institution that, you know, cares a lot about performing neutrality mm. and work the ref mm. a little. Um, and, you know, especially in a situation like the one we're in right now, where to a certain extent, COVID has kind of intensified and revealed a pretty strong anti-expertise current running through the Republican Party and conservatives in America more generally that like, and you know, I'm not like, I'm not talking about like think tankers, but like that there is among the conservative grassroots and those who are sympathetic to them, a lot of like knee jerk, yeah, but why should I do it just because you tell me to? And that is going to muddy the waters between like, oh, this is just objectively, you know, misinformation because you're going against scientific consensus. And oh, we've decided that scientific consensus is objective truth. And therefore, how dare you be questioning what the experts are saying? Like they're really, it, the, Yes. So, so on the one hand, that makes it very easy for any given, like, scientific, for any given act of combating misinformation to be portrayed as persecuting conservatives. But it also does mean that, like, 
there is not going to be a bright line for the people who are in charge of policing that when where it obviously becomes oh i'm actually no longer going after misinformation i'm going after something that like i don't think the facts bear out that i think is probably going to turn out being wrong um but that is something that is not only like a deeply held opinion but like actually could turn out to be the case and it's just not the assessment of the experts who i have decided that i trust yeah i was just gonna add on this moderation point one thing that's taken for granted here is that moderating online spaces is extremely difficult especially when you're moderating literally billions of users it's just generally difficult work and it i kind of wonder like when we're talking about making facebook better i often do just think like is is this really even possible i mean i mean one thing that is True, that that makes this even more complicated is most people's Facebooks aren't that political to begin with, I don't think. Mine is because I'm a weirdo. But like if I looked at my husband's Facebook right now, it would be almost all cats and food videos. And like I think that's a lot of people. They're just browsing Facebook and they occasionally get on arguments. But like this this idea where where people are being radicalized on Facebook, that does seem to represent a small portion of the population. So it's like you you have to be like targeting and looking for these groups and like there's basically millions of them and it just seems generally difficult another thing is like sometimes they'd make changes and it doesn't really seem like they do much i mean they have actually stopped weighing the angry emoji so it doesn't get more weight than the other responses and look you look at facebook right now it's still like largely considered toxic so like I mean, how much did that change help? I'm sure it helped on the margins, but at the core, the the whole platform does just people getting together I, and talking. I often wonder if it's just going to be a natural response that it becomes toxic. You look at Twitter, which has taken a more hands-on approach, I think, to moderation. Uh, they were pretty early on in like marking posts as misinformation and and you know deleting them, and it uses a reverse chronological approach by default in in a bunch of those platforms. Although I think they're moving away from that. But that's generally has, how Twitter has worked. And Twitter is still not what I would consider a great place on the internet. Like, it is still filled with toxicity. still has a lot of misinformation. If Facebook was taking a more hands-on approach or was making some of these changes some of its critics are saying, I'm not really sure how much better this platform would be. And, like, the flip side of that is a lot of people are already enjoying the platform because they don't use it that much for politics. So if you get too heavy-handed with a moderation, you could piss them off and actually detract from some of the good that the platform is doing for them. It's not to say that any of this is impossible, but it is much more complicated than I think a lot of the public conversations suggest. Yeah. Hermione, yeah. I'm kind of push you on this a little bit because you're the one who like, you know, came out of the A block being like, well, but a lot of human interaction is just like pro-social <laughs> and that's a good thing. And now you're like, a lot of human interaction is inherently toxic. It does seem like you're trying to have it both ways here, right? Like, do you think that, that there is a world in which a massive social platform is like on net good for humanity? Or do you, does it seem like the toxification of things is inevitable? That, that's the thing. It's just, I just don't know. I, I mean, like, the internet in general has like, there are a bunch of places I go to on like Reddit and occasionally use Facebook and on Twitter where I find great information. I enjoy interacting with like experts on Twitter or other journalists on Twitter. But at the same time, it's not really hard for me to like scroll to, I don't know, like my notifications are usually like a toxic hellhole. Whenever I write about anything related to policing, people will just respond with some of the like nastiest vile things sometimes racist things and it's just like i don't know how this all balances out in the end for for me that that's like one of the big questions here is like is the problem fundamentally that people are not meant to talk to each other this much that that there there were supposed to be physical boundaries in how we socialize and communicate i honestly just don't know the answer to that so while i can say that there's some good here and some bad here i i'm just not sure how it all balances out yeah i mean i think just to to uh, since I think this segment has been rather like regulation skeptical and and I, I do want to emphasize that the big problem with Facebook that we haven't devoted a ton of time to, I think in part because the three of us genuinely like aren't experts <laughs> in it, is, uh, is, is just sort of the, the consequences abroad that people can try to like whip up mobs to like lynch and kill people in the US on Facebook, but for all the problems, uh, the very many problems with US law enforcement, 
you will probably get arrested and go to jail <laughs> if you do that, especially if you post about it on Facebook. In Sri Lanka, in Burma, in a lot of countries in Africa, in much of Latin America, where you don't have as firm a, a state monopoly on the use of violence, where uh, you have even more overt and toxic ethnic and religious cleavages. I think sort of a, a quote in one of uh, Max Fisher and Amanda Taub's articles on this was, you know, sort of the, the racism against Muslims in, in Sri Lanka was the flame, but, but Facebook was the wind. And I don't, I don't know the, the correct regulatory regime to deal with that. I'm, Max Fisher has a book coming out uh, in the next year or so sort of on, on this exact problem uh, and, and I think trying to take a global look at the kind of violent consequences of some social media. And I, I plan on, on learning a lot more about it then. But I think it, it, one thing this indicates is that there, there are going to be real limits on what the U.S. government as a regulatory institution can do. It's going to be looking out for, for its own people. It, it won't know a lot about these international contexts. And to see the problem in its whole scope, you probably need some kind of like global treaty regime or something. The stuff that you're talking about, Dylan, is the most obviously amenable to national level regulation. But the problem is that the nations in question are uninterested in regulating Facebook in that particular manner, right? Like they're much more interested in, at best, les majestés, and at worst, like active, you know, censoring of Winnie the Pooh memes. Les majestés, I I should say, is just like (laughs) laws saying you can't criticize leaders. Uh, for people who didn't didn't go to fancy school like Dara, <laughs> um, but like the the problems here are things that yes, like a global regime could theoretically address, but like I'm not sure we have great evidence from the 21st century of um, ceding more power to make rules from international orders rather than extracting quote unquote voluntary commitments from national actors. And this seems like something that goes like, I have a really hard time seeing the government of Myanmar saying, yeah, we're going to sign on to an international treaty framework that allows Facebook to be like promoters of free speech in our country. We're pretty far into it. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Herman is going to tell us about a new study on school lunches, which is the stuff the kids aren't eating this week while they eat Halloween candy. So stay with us. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right. It is your favorite time of the week on Every Weeds. It is white paper time. This week's paper is by Wharton professor Jesse Hanbury and UChicago Booth's Sarah Moshari, and it's about how federal subsidies for school lunches affect the price of groceries overall. So, Herman, please walk us through it. Yeah, so this paper looked at essentially the impact of the 2010 Healthy Hunger Free Kid Act's community eligibility provision. Essentially, what this did is it expanded the national school lunch program, which it's a pretty large program to begin with, but uh, by 2016, thanks to the provisions in this law, it, it 
grew to reach more than 30 million children. So what what they looked at is how did this affect grocery sales? Um, and they found that adoption of of the provision at a like a local level was linked to a 10% decline in grocery sales at large chains. And interestingly, as a result, the chains lowered their prices across the board by 2.5%. So just like a you can imagine a basic supply demand thing there. If if people are buying fewer groceries, then they're gonna lower the prices to, you know hopefully catch up with demand there. And one interesting component of that minus 2.5% reduction is that these were not just local reductions, but change just acted across the board, meaning that if one school took this eligibility provision and it affected a local chain near that school, the chain seemed to react by just reducing prices across all of its grocery stores instead of just the one by that school. So that that's one way that the, the effects, I think, were even more far-reaching than you would expect. Ultimately, what these researchers estimate is that grocery costs for the median household were reduced by 4.5%. And there was a lot of variation from place to place. Like some of the numbers like could reach double digit percent drops. But generally the idea here is like the this the expansion of the school lunch program generally seemed to decrease grocery prices at these large chains uh, for for a lot of people. This is a really interesting paper to me because I think there's there's a general question it speaks to, which is the question of whether of whether subsidies can reduce costs in in certain markets. And we've been talking a lot about markets where this seems to not be true in in the context of the the Democrats' reconciliation bill. So things like childcare or housing, where there are like regulatory constraints on how many people are are allowed to do sort of certified childcare. Or there are zoning laws that limit how much you can build and, and where you can build apartments. Adding subsidies tends to just lead the subsidy to be captured and to to increase prices more. Because if if there's nowhere else for someone to go, there if there's no one else building apartments, and you just give a thousand extra bucks to everyone who rents, like odds are the landlord is just going to raise prices by a thousand dollars. And what's interesting about this this case in school lunches is that food seems to be like a much more normal market. Seems to be a market where, like, if you add subsidies and you increase demand for the good, then like you get more supply, you get to an equilibrium where food prices fall relative to other prices. It also sort of is, is a finding that I think holds internationally. There was an interesting study by some development economists of an experiment that Mexico did with their cash program, where where some villages got cash payments and some got sort of packages of food. And I think sort of the main question they were trying to answer is, does the cash program cause inflation? And they found that it doesn't, but that the food program caused deflation, which is the same finding we see in a, a, the U.S. In sort of school lunch context, that when you're giving it in the form of, of food, then the price of food falls. I want to kind of get into the weeds about a, a little bit about how this law worked, because I think it demonstrates a certain amount of unintended consequences at work on a totally different policy debate, because the law essentially took school lunches in some cases from like an individual family by family, you have to demonstrate that you qualify for this to some school districts, some schools are just in are serving a population that is likely to be in poverty. And therefore, we're just going to make school lunch free in those schools. It was framed, or at least it's framed in the paper, as being an effort to reduce administrative burden, which is a term that has come up a bunch on white paper segments before. But it's like the idea that it's really uh, labor intensive to access public benefits and that that's not an amount of resources that the people who are most in need of public benefits have. And so you need to, if you actually want to make a welfare state work, you need to think critically about the amount of effort that you're requiring and the amount of initiative that you're requiring people to show and maybe like smooth that path pretty substantially. Now, usually this is treated as like, okay, and so we have to panopticon our way out of this. We have to make it so that we know who qualifies for things and just give it to them rather than making them prove they have to qualify for it themselves. What happened in this case was like actually something a little bit different. It was actually turning a targeted program into like a somewhat more universal program by saying, you know, we know that there are some kids who go to these schools who, you know, if they put together their packets demonstrating eligibility, we would find that they weren't in fact eligible for free lunch. But like, whatever, we're just going to suck it up and roll with it because it's going to be a bigger impact for those who would otherwise qualify. And like, that's 
you know, it's, it's a slightly more radical change than most administrative, like it is a different axis of policy change. It gets into the targeted versus universal programs debate that like we're used to hearing about in terms of like the politics of, you know, giving free college to millionaires, children and that kind of thing. But what we're seeing here is that the policy effects of a small universal program do turn out to be pretty widespread because, you know, the the people who are getting the benefits of quote unquote might not necessarily need them are still in similarly situated enough position that they're not like buying up all of the groceries that are now on the shelves because they have all of this extra money that they didn't have to spend on school lunch. Yeah, I think this is just like a in some ways, it's like a really optimistic paper in the sense that like this policy that was meant to help predominantly poor children ended up in some ways helping a lot of people across the board. And like, I think the mechanism is so indirect that you couldn't say that this like gives a political buy in. Right. Because I I don't know if people are making the connection when they see lower food prices necessarily. But I mean, as a policymaker, you see the effects and you're like, yeah, this is this is good. I think the uh, the other important context for this is just like obviously we're in a point right now where people are freaking out about inflation. Like the the inflation is coming in higher than than perhaps uh, a lot of us are comfortable with. And this seems like a good example of more government spending in effect decreasing inflationary pressure on on people, which is not often how we think about inflation. Normally, these conversations about inflation is that any increase in government spending will actually lead to more inflation because it'll fuel demand. But we're seeing here is is in some ways the opposite. And, and like I think the thing worth emphasizing here is this is not the only policy in the world that has this kind of effect. Um, another example I think I brought up in our inflation episode is like if oil and gas prices are constantly leading to more inflation spikes, then like, you know, relying less on oil and gas and we're not relying more on renewable energy sources like that could actually decrease inflation pressures, even if it means more government spending to fund those renewable energy sources. So I think it's just like another part of this conversation where helping poor people with more government spending does not have to mean that everyone suffers as a result. And in fact, sometimes the opposite happens. And, you know, that's that's worth celebrating. Well, that's all for us today. Uh, If you want to hear more about the Facebook files, check out another Vox podcast called Recode Daily. We'll link to an episode in the show notes. Thanks to Vox's Herman Lopez and ProPublica's Dara Lin for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. And you know where to find our newsletter. It is vox.com slash weedsletter. We will be back in your feeds this Friday with our last installment of the Supreme Court miniseries with Vox's Ian Milheiser. And this week, they're talking about vaccine mandates and the Constitution. So we will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.